Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Ellington, Connecticut. And this is a case that you guys have been asking me to cover for years, the murder of Connie debate. This is a case that took me weeks to dig through all the court records and data, so this is going to be more than one part. But as always, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Connie Margata debate was the kind of person you knew you could always count on. Whether you physically needed something, needed a shoulder to cry on, or just needed to laugh, Connie was the person you would call to make life better. On July 4th of 2003, Connie married a man named Rick DeBate. He worked as a computer network administrator while Connie had a lot of success as a pharmaceutical rep. They bought a nice house in an upscale neighborhood in Ellington and went on to have two children together, which were both boys. Those boys were the center of Connie's entire world. As soon as they were born, it was like she had found pieces of her heart that she didn't know were missing and everything just seemed perfect. From the outside looking in, you would think that Connie and Rick's life had been ripped straight from the scenes of a Hallmark movie. Two kids, a big house with a sprawling yard in a fancy neighborhood, nice vacations, and successful careers. They appeared to be living the suburban dream, but as we all know, appearances can be deceiving. One of Rick's friends later told police that Rick and Connie were not happy, in part because they were total opposites. Connie had a type A personality. She liked to plan and organize while Rick was more laid back. Rick would often complain about not having enough personal time and would refer to his wife as a bitch. So shitless already. Connie's complaints, however, were things like Rick being the kind of guy who thought he was babysitting when in reality, it's called parenting. Money also disappeared into the abyss when Rick was around and Connie was constantly left trying to teach him how to adult and keep the family afloat. What Connie did not know, that not only was she married to a third child, she was also married to a cheater. Court records state that Rick was having an affair with a woman who we're gonna call Samantha. Samantha told friends that she and Rick had been in love since they were 14 and they'd first slept together after Rick got married, but before having children, so sometime between 2003 and 2006. She seemed to be under the impression that Rick would be getting a divorce, but Rick was a liar. Not only was he cheating on Connie with Samantha, he was cheating on both of them with dancers from the Electric Blue Strip Club. He would rent out an elegant room at the Grand Six Motel to accommodate his double-cheating bonanzas. Rick was constantly telling Samantha that he was in the process of filing for divorce and moving out, but every time the divorce and move-out date would come, he'd make up an excuse as to why he hadn't gone through with it. As disappointed as Samantha may or may not have been, she stayed by his side. Court documents indicate that Rick told Samantha that her Valentine's Day gift was going to be those divorce papers, but that never happened. He then suggested that he might file the paperwork in the summer, but only after he and Connie fixed up their already beautiful home so Connie could sell it. Connie was 100% unaware of this plan. 
Summer did not bring forth said divorce, but it did result in a pregnancy, Samantha's pregnancy. I repeat, Samantha was now pregnant with married Rick's baby. He was shocked, but reportedly told Samantha, this baby was made from love and will be loved. Following the news of the new baby, Rick did meet with a divorce attorney, but he didn't retain that attorney and never met with the attorney again. In late July, Samantha told a friend that Rick was essentially stressing the fuck out. He was worried that people were going to hate him, he was going to lose his friends, and that if his parents rejected him for this, he'd have nowhere to live. Rick didn't make the kind of money that he liked to spend and was about to be shit-ass broken homeless with another mouth to feed. To me, these all sound like consequences. On October 1st, court documents state that Rick claimed he was going to see his divorce attorney again, but we already know that's a lie. Lies don't count when it comes to Rick, though, so on October 23rd, he claimed that the papers were in progress and he planned to move out as soon as he talked to his parents. In a shocking conclusion to that saga, by the end of that month, none of that had been done. Samantha was fed up with this shit and finally told him that she was shutting him out until he could stop making excuses and follow through on his word. A woman with boundaries, even Samantha's, is a man like Rick's worst nightmare, so he groveled like the bitch he is and vowed to get his shit together, saying, I'm not going to let you both down. The following day, he claimed to have already rented a storage unit and moved half of his stuff out of the house, none of which was true. Big Mad True Crime is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, everyone's been posting their New Year's resolutions, which got me thinking, what are some things about myself that I want to stay the same? Around the New Year's, we tend to obsess about how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we're already doing right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your vitamins like you should and now you want to start eating breakfast every morning too. Therapy helps you find your strengths so you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. I love my therapist and can't imagine a world where I'm not spilling my guts to her every single week. Sometimes I want to change something. Sometimes I need to be reminded that I'm doing more than enough. And other times I just need to vent. It's just nice having someone who knows every part of who I am and I don't have to be anyone for her, just me. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I know I went through a couple of therapists that weren't the right match for me before I found the one that I have now. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BigMad today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BigMad. On November 16th, and this is 2015, by the way, Rick told Samantha that he should be completely moved out soon and by the 23rd was claiming that he and Connie were on the same page about their divorce, though they were going to be taking things slow to make things easier on the kids. He claimed Connie knew he'd been cheating on her with Samantha, but didn't know the full extent of their relationship, you know, like the baby. 
However, the truth of the matter here is that Connie did not know about Rick's cheating at all, but even still was absolutely fed up with her husband. According to court documents, on December 4th at 5.19 a.m., Connie created a note on her phone titled, Why I Want a Divorce. It included the following. He takes money from a lot of accounts that don't belong to him, says he is sorry, but takes no responsibility for it. Let's the kids watch TV for hours. Does not keep any of his promises to me in regards to getting a list together for son's medical, having questions prepared for appointments at the doctor's or at school meetings. He forgets everything. He is not sympathetic. When my dad was diagnosed, he just let me cry without helping. He lies to people and makes them think we have a great sex life and that we are this super couple. He does not take any responsibility for why I am angry. He has to be the center of attention all the time. Example, Disney. He was more worried about his costume looking good than running after our son. He does not worry about anything. He has no money in his bank account. His credit is horrible. He acts like a kid constantly. I don't know anything about his day, who he speaks to, or what goes on in his life other than work. He does not share his cell phone or computer password. There is no trust. He is never happy. Nothing I do is ever good enough. He does not appreciate anything he has and takes it for granted. I'm tired of covering for him. I'm tired of lying and acting like things are great when they aren't. I'm tired of him getting all the credit and glory for everything I do and he doesn't correct them. I hate that he procrastinates on everything. He does not romance me unless forced. He does not discipline the kids at all. He just screams all the time. He swears at me. Again, shit list. I cannot count on him to keep his promises ever. I always have to plan everything. I do not feel connected to him. I don't feel like I can ever trust him. He never makes me feel like we're his top priority. He drinks and drives. He promises to be home on time and is not. He promised to help with Disney. He did nothing until the last week and that was only parking. He waits for the very last minute to help with watching the kids and adds on a lot more stress to my day. He blames everyone else for his problems. He cannot focus. He does not call me throughout the day. When he does, it's a two-second conversation that he does not remember anything that was discussed. The conversations we have are never romantic. They're about him. He gets mad that I don't trust him to do things, and when I give him the responsibility, he forgets. He teaches the kids nothing. He never works on their homework with them, goes over why school is important. I have to do it all. That was the end of that list, and notably, there was zero mention of him being a cheating son of a bitch with a baby on the way, which I am certain would have at least made the top five. Less than 30 minutes later, Connie made a second list titled The Good. This one was a list of pros, if that's what you want to call them. This list was much shorter and read, He fixes things at the rental. He babysits. He gets me tea. He does feet and neck rubs. He helps my parents and family when they need it. People like him. When he is in a great mood, he's fun to be around. I still find him attractive and I'm myself around him. In summary, the bar for Rick is on the ground. A little less than a week later, on December 10th, Rick told Samantha that divorce papers were being served soon. A week later, on the 17th, he said they'd be served next week. 
While Rick was telling Samantha that the divorce was in the works, he was telling others a totally different story. On December 19th, Rick sent a text to a friend that said, Last minute date night. Took Connie to Westover, Vermont, for an overnight. Sonny's house looks the same. He said he was at the name of this fancy restaurant in the area, and I'm talking fancy, fancy, like serving escargot and $47 lamb shanks. Connie was having a great time on their romantic getaway and even posted about it on Facebook. That Facebook post is something I doubt Rick planned for because Samantha's friends saw it, told her about it, and Samantha was pissed. At 1041, she texted Rick on his shady little Google number saying, why did you surprise Connie with a trip to Vermont without the kids? And why didn't you warn me? Rick waited until the next morning to respond and used that time to concoct the most detailed of lies. Rick responded with, what you're reading on Facebook last night was not anything that actually happened. I will call you later to explain. My uncle that passed away, that's the town. The family needed somebody to go out and pick up some things at the house. The new owner found some personal items. I dropped the kids off at my parents, and it gave Connie and I a chance to work out some items regarding the divorce. She's not ready to be public on Facebook about it. Samantha didn't immediately respond, so Rick sent a follow-up novel 13 minutes later, adding, This is certainly nothing romantic. We have a lot to work out, and she was gone all week. Can't discuss things with the kids nearby. I doubled up on family errands to get done. I did get a little depressed last night, so I had to have a couple drinks to get through, but I was just depressed about being at my uncle's house, not about getting a divorce. A lot has been done. If you have time after work tomorrow, I can swing by the house and talk. Translated into Gaslight, Rick wasn't sure if Samantha believed his bullshit and decided to try and make her feel sorry for him so she would just feel guilty for even asking. Unfortunately, that worked. Samantha believed him and even apologized for questioning him. Samantha responded saying, I have no right to be jealous or angry or hurt. I shouldn't have to make you explain. I just wish you would have warned me. It was more jarring than I expected to think that you were taking Connie away for the weekend. This time, Rick didn't respond immediately and it looks like Samantha started to panic. She sent a follow-up apology saying, I understand what you are doing. Thank you for explaining it to me. And you shouldn't have to clear every last minute by me or explain this to me. That's not how it should be. It was just a very big surprise to be asked why you would surprise Connie with a kidless trip to Vermont for the weekend. Mondays usually suck for you, but if you can stop by, I'll be home. You might think this would be the end of this conversation and that Rick would just tell her he would see her Monday, but no. Rick took this as an opportunity to expand on his lies in a way that should be studied by psychologists. Rick responded that everything made more sense than it appeared, that he and Connie had simply been doing an exercise from one of Connie's books, Divorce for the Modern Times, or something. He claimed that one of the exercises was to post something on social media that you normally would have when the marriage was good, then delete it. He claimed this was an exercise in putting the past in the past. Any rational human not plagued by the ghost of gaslighting present would hear that and realize it would actually be creating the present as a lie and immediately putting it in the past. But Samantha was deep in the throes of what in the cinnamon toast fuck. So she told him that she believed him and even thanked him for not getting upset with her. I hate Rick for both of them at this point. And I am genuinely curious as to how Rick convinced Connie to delete that post.
In the days after the Vermont trip, Connie sent Rick texts telling him how much she loved him and how amazing he was. Rick returned her energy. Shit did hit the fan, though, on December 22nd, but not over cheating, over finances. Connie texted Rick at 9.23 p.m. saying that she'd been on the phone with a cable company for hours because they were saying their bill had doubled due to a sports package being added. She wrote, I'm out over fucking $1,200 for cable, adding, you again lied to me and I am again cleaning up your fucking mess. Rick responded a minute later saying, I cannot fucking pick up because I am still trying to clean up this shit, and denied ever adding any sports package. No word yet on what he was cleaning up when Connie seemed to have been trying to call him, but he certainly wasn't too busy to make plans to see his mistress the following day, which he had done just five minutes prior to Connie's text. He had texted Samantha saying, See you tomorrow, my little love nugget. To which Samantha responded, See you tomorrow, my little jackass. But tomorrow was going to change the course of all of their lives. Hey guys, when the clock strikes 10, I put on my crown and claim my throne as the binge-watching queen. Because I wear that crown, if there's a streaming app, I probably have it. Unfortunately, I can also be a little bit forgetful, and as it turns out, at some point in time, I managed to sign up for the same streaming service twice. This definitely felt like a me problem when it happened, but apparently more than like 80% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about. Thankfully... Rocket Money is there to point out the little whoopsies like mine and will even take care of the cancellation process for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with just a simple tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bigmad. That's rocketmoney.com slash bigmad. Rocketmoney.com slash bigmad. The following morning at 10.11 a.m., the panic alarm on the debate's home security system went off. It was the kind of alarm that gets first responders dispatched to the house, but before they could even get there, Rick called 911 moaning for help. A member of the Ellington Fire Department, who we'll call Adam, was the first one on scene, pulling in at 10.22, and it was eerily quiet. Adam approached the house and rang the doorbell, but no one answered. He opened the door and yelled out, but no one responded. But in opening that door, he noticed the smell of smoke and saw a haze on the first level of the house, so he decided to make his way inside. Almost immediately, he noticed drops of blood leading from an open doorway in the basement area in the front hallway, and those drops turned into a trail of smeared blood that led to the kitchen. 
Adam followed the trail and found Rick lying face down on the kitchen floor with a brown metal folding chair covering the lower half of his body. As Adam looked closer, he noticed that Rick's right wrist and right ankle were zip-tied to the chair and there was also a zip-tie around his neck. It was tight but not tight enough to be embedded into his skin. Adam asked Rick if he could hear him and all Rick managed to say was, they're still in the house. With a potentially active threat and Adam not being a cop, he exited the house through the front door and called for additional units to stage. This was quickly looking like a possible violent home invasion. It took seven minutes to get enough additional officers to enter the home safely, and in that time, no one was seen exiting. Officers re-entered the home, and while still tied to the chair, Rick explained that Connie had been shot in the basement by a large person wearing all camouflage and a mask. A trooper removed the zip tie from around Rick's neck, and Rick told him more about what happened. According to court records, he explained that he'd been driving to work when he got a text message saying the alarm was going off. He decided to turn around and head back to the house, and when he got inside, heard a noise on the second floor. He went up there to check it out and found a male intruder wearing full camouflage, a mask, and gloves in his walk-in closet. While Rick was in the closet with the intruder, Rick says that Connie came home from the gym. He yelled for her to run, but the intruder ended up shooting Connie right in front of him. Rick claimed that the intruder then used a box cutter or something to stab him and used a blowtorch to burn him. Rick said he managed to wrestle the torch away from the intruder and burn him back, which is when he fled. Rick said that after the intruder left, he made his way up the stairs to hit the panic alarm. He then summoned the strength to get to his cell phone, which had been on the kitchen counter, and call 911. While Rick was telling his story, other officers were checking the rest of the house for this supposed intruder, since Rick initially stated that they were still in the house. Those officers followed the trail of blood, which led down the basement stairs to a large area of blood drops at the bottom. On the floor by the couch, they found a small burnt pile of paper, a bloody box cutter, a butane torch, a hammer, and a small bag of tools. The basement had a couple of rooms, including a children's play area and a room where the debate stored their firewood. We're going to call this the wood room. In the wood room, detectives found a 357 Magnum revolver on the floor and Connie's body. She was lying flat on the floor, face up, against the far right wall. She was cool to the touch, had no color in her face, and lividity had started to set in. Police then cleared the basement of any possible intruder as well as the rest of the house. The only two people inside were Rick tied to a chair in the kitchen and Connie's body in the wood room. With the house clear of any potential threat, EMS rushed in to help Rick, cutting off the rest of the zip ties from his ankle and wrist. Rick rolled onto his back and EMS cut off his clothes, revealing cuts to his left chest and thighs. Connie was pronounced dead at the scene, and according to court documents, an autopsy showed that she suffered two gunshot wounds, one to the rear center of her head and another to the lower left side of her torso. Both bullets were removed from her body, indicating that there were no exit wounds. 
There was a lack of expected blood from Connie's stomach wound, which means that it's likely she was shot in the head first before then being shot a second time in the abdomen. It seemed odd that someone, an intruder, would shoot Connie in the stomach after shooting her in the head, but that wasn't the only odd thing about her wounds. Rick told police that he had yelled for Connie to run, so she would have known that something was going on, but Connie had no defensive wounds on her body at all. She had also been shot in the back of the head as if someone had snuck up behind her. Knowing the intruder wasn't in the house, three canine units were brought in to try and find them. Rick's wallet was found in the grass outside of the back door of the basement, so the dog followed the scent trail associated with that wallet, hoping to locate the man responsible for the attack on Connie and Rick. The dog took the scent, followed the exterior walls of the home, but then tried to re-enter the house through the front door. It was open at that point because EMS was still tending to Rick. The handler led the dog away from the door and back to the wallet to try again, but the dog followed the same track against the exterior walls and towards that front door. In the time the dog had tracked this scent trail again, the ambulance had backed up to the house and Rick had been placed inside of it. And instead of trying to go into the house this time, the dog tried to climb into the ambulance with Rick. In the end, they closed the ambulance doors and Rick was carted off to the hospital, minus sleuthing Pooch. Two additional canines were brought in as well to try and narrow down any possible scent trail leading away from the house, but none were ever found. Detectives set up a perimeter around the debate home, interviewed neighbors in the area, and pushed a message to nearby hospitals to be on the lookout for anyone coming in with burn injuries. Police in the neighborhood canvassed the immediate vicinity of the crime scene, and a next-door neighbor said that they had been home all morning and hadn't noticed anything unusual or suspicious. An extensively thorough search was done both inside and around the debate's property, and no one could find any signs of forced entry, a struggle, or a burglary. There was a small basement window that had been removed, but that window was just a dick and the debates had been struggling with it long before the murder. There was also undisturbed dust on the window sill, indicating that no one had touched it in a while and certainly no one had climbed through it. Even Rick's backyard wallet had been found completely intact, with his debit cards, credit cards, and $20 still inside. If this intruder had come for something, he had left with nothing. Detectives made their way to the hospital to get an official statement from Rick. Rick told them that the intruder was six feet tall, stocky and obese, with a deep voice wearing camo clothing, a mask and gloves. The officer noted that Rick appeared to be upset but didn't have any tears in his eyes. And according to those same documents, as the interview progressed, it was clear that Rick's recollection of the incident was evolving as detectives would ask for details. Rick told the detectives numerous versions of his story, none of which made sense. And buckle up, you guys, because it's about to get real bumpy. Rick told detectives that at 8.10 a.m., he took the kids to the bus stop, then came back to the house to put on his work shirt. Connie was looking for her spinning shoes for a class she planned to take at the YMCA that day, and Rick says he told her to call to see if it had been rescheduled. It was December in Connecticut. He said that before saying goodbye to her and leaving for work. He said that he left sometime between 8.10 and 8.30 and saw Connie backing out of the driveway as he was leaving. 
His commute is generally 40 minutes depending on traffic, but while he was driving, realized that he had forgotten his laptop at home and turned back around to go get it. At that same time, Rick said he got an alert on his phone that his home security alarm was going off. Police asked Rick if he had set the alarm that morning, and he said, yes, well, a couple of times. I may have disarmed it when I left. I can't remember. He paused for a hot second before adding, I was trying to do it through my phone, so I wasn't even at the house. No one asked. After getting the alert, Rick told detectives that he sent an email to his boss saying that he was heading home to check on the alarm. In reality, he wasn't too worried about the alarm. He just didn't want his boss to know that he'd forgotten his laptop. Rick told police that he got back to the house between 8.45 and 9 a.m., parked in the driveway, and didn't see anything suspicious like broken windows, doors, or glass. Rick proceeded to go inside, put his phone down by the stove, and started the coffee maker. That is when he heard a noise upstairs. He assumed it was one of the cats, but went up there to check it out anyway. According to court records, Rick said that as he went upstairs, he heard a noise from the half-closed primary bedroom door. When he opened that door, he saw the intruder, who was now around six foot two, wearing a dark green camouflage suit and mask, looking through things in his closet. When the intruder noticed Rick, he says the intruder manhandled him, throwing him around the bedroom closet, which was a walk-in closet with built-in shelves and dressers on either side. He said the intruder told him to give him his wallet, credit cards, and PIN numbers, which Rick obliged, adding that the intruder said something threatening about his children. As the interview progressed, however, Rick seemed to remember exactly what that threat was, quoting the intruder as saying, Give me what I want or I'm going to sit here quietly and wait for your family to get home. He described the intruder's voice as being deep like Vin Diesel's. His words, not mine. This episode of Big Mad True Crime is brought to you by Wild Grain. Hey guys, I'm going to give it to you straight. Bread has never broken my heart. Bread is fluffy and flaky and loyal and makes every situation better. Whether it's breakfast, dinner, or me nonchalantly eating a baguette in bed watching Kilmore Girls, I love bread. Last year, I found out about a bread subscription box, which seemed way too good to be true. But let me assure you, it is not simply worth the hype. It surpasses the hype of hype. Enter Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. And every item bakes in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. In summary, all of my carb dreams have officially come true. I will wait on my porch like it is Christmas in January when I know my box is out for delivery. I haven't met a wild grain bread I haven't loved, and that even includes their fruity pastries. And for those of you who do not know, I don't tend to like fruit like at all. We recently made their blueberry biscuits, and the way I'm about to substitute something for those every single month, you can bet on it. Oh, and their croissants are life-changing. They have rebranded my expectations of a croissant, so good luck out there. The competition is strong. I am a terrible cook, but baking my wild grain bread is so simple. I literally just set the oven to the temp they say, pop it in for as long as they say, and boom, I am fed. And you can now fully customize your wild grain box so you can get any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries you like. If you want a box of all bread, 
all pasta or all pastries, you can have it. Basically, you are the boss of your own bread. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash BMTC to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash BMTC. That's wildgrain.com slash BMTC, or you can use promo code BMTC at checkout. Much, much later in the interview, after rehashing it with additional detectives, Rick remembered that the intruder had actually pulled a knife on him. One he said looked like something you'd pull out of a leather sheath, adding that it was a curved silver blade with jags on the bottom. According to Rick, all of this happened in the span of about one single minute. During the minute Rick was in the closet with the intruder, he told police that he heard the garage door open and Connie enter the house through the garage. Rick says he yelled at her and told her to run. That the intruder then yelled at him and pushed Rick down the stairs. In different rehashings of this same incident, he stated that he actually fell down the stairs and in another version said he'd tripped. At one point, he conceded, saying that he was pretty sure he tripped. Nevertheless, Stumbling Rick stated that the intruder followed after Connie, who was running, and says the intruder knew she was in the basement because the basement door is loud and was still moving, though you cannot see the basement door from the second floor. By the time Rick got up and stumbled down the stairs, he said he had to go and find Connie and the intruder, but in other retellings claimed to have been following the intruder the entire time. Rick seemed to theorize that maybe Connie had run to the basement instead of outside to try and grab the only loaded gun they had in the house. It was kept in a locked safe in the wood room. Rick told detectives, she must have unlocked it. She grabbed it. She must have grabbed it. He claims to have heard her say, I have a gun. Get out of the house. Once in the basement, Rick says he heard a gunshot and thought he saw Connie go down, though Later in this same interview, he added that he saw Connie struggling with the intruder prior to the gun going off, that he thinks he saw the intruder point the gun at her head, and that Connie was facing away from the intruder when she was shot. Following that, Rick says he rushed over to his wife, but then quickly heard another shot. He assumed the intruder was shooting at him, but he wasn't. That second shot was also at Connie. Rick said the percussion of the gunfire was so loud that he didn't hear for a good five minutes. After shooting Connie, Rick says the man turned the gun on him, but instead of shooting him, Rick says that he was able to wrestle the intruder. Though all of that would kind of be impossible if this next version of events is true. The one where Rick told detectives that the intruder threw the gun down or kept it or held it after shooting Connie the second time. One cannot point a gun at someone while additionally throwing it down, keeping it, or holding it. Not at you. But let's continue. With Connie's shot and the gun wherever the hell Rick says it was, Rick claims that the intruder did some kind of pressure point thing and started tying him to the folding chair. Though in a separate version of this detail, Rick claims the intruder dragged him in a headlock. Rick was also sure to mention that he didn't remember the chair having been in the basement before since they usually kept them in the garage. And we love a spontaneous utterance. 
With Rick tied halfway to this chair like a chicken wing, again, his words, not mine, he claimed that the intruder must have grabbed his toolbox because he started burning Rick with his own blowtorch. Following the burning, he says the intruder put something around his neck, remembering that he couldn't swallow very well. Then he says the intruder started randomly poking him with a box cutter on his legs, shoulder, and light taps on his head. For an intruder who had just shot his wife twice, Rick commented that the man wasn't overly aggressive. The blowtorch and box cutter, much like the gun used to kill his wife, all belonged to Rick. I suppose the intruder didn't feel like using his own big curved sheath knife that he had previously pulled on Rick in the closet. Rick went on to tell detectives that after tapping him with the box cutter, the intruder started putting things into a box like he, quote unquote, wanted to start a fire. And I don't know why you would assume someone wanted to start a fire when you see them putting shit into a box, but that's where we're at here. And thankfully so, according to Rick, because he saw this as his opportunity to wiggle out some limbs and I guess grab the blowtorch and turn it around on the intruder. Though I'm pretty sure that he said the blowtorch came before the box cutter. Regardless, Rick said that he thought he burned the intruder's mask, though he eventually changed that to having caught the man's mask on fire. This led the intruder to drop said torch, grab his face, and run. When detectives asked how long Rick was tied up in the basement, he said it was only for maybe 30 seconds to a minute, so the tying, burning, cutting, box-stuffing intruder was moving in fast-forward. With the intruder gone, Rick says that he got really dizzy and screamed for help. He didn't get a response, so he crawled up the stairs with one arm and one leg still tied to the chair and hit the panic button on the alarm. After a few minutes, he mustered up the strength to crawl to his phone on the kitchen counter using the stove to hoist himself up and call 911. Because of the zip tie around his neck, he couldn't say much, so he just waited for help. He recalled a gentleman coming, but he couldn't speak because he was woozy or something. He claimed that the gentleman saw what happened and went outside and called. I have no earthly idea what he is talking about here, but obviously this sounded like complete and utter bullshit, but Rick had an excuse for that. He said that the more he spoke to police, the less he remembered, and that is literally only a problem for people who are lying. With none of this adding up, the interview continued and Rick was asked some clarifying questions. His answers only got worse. This time, Rick says that he woke up at around 5.30 that morning with Connie getting up at around 7.15. He says she got dressed in her workout clothes, which she was found in, and this time, Rick gave a much more specific time as to when he left for work, saying that he left the house at around 8.20. He said that as he was pulling out of the driveway, he saw Connie in her car, which was parked in the garage, trying to find her spinning shoes. This is a problem for Rick, considering he had just told police that Connie was pulling out of the driveway as he was leaving. In this new version of events, he never saw Connie leave that house. After leaving with Connie still in the garage, Rick claims that he got about five minutes into his 40-minute commute when he realized he had forgotten his laptop. Instead of immediately turning around, Rick says he pulled over on the side of a rural road. It was while he was parked there that he says he got the alert about his alarm. He didn't know what triggered the alarm or which sensor was going off, but Rick says that he deleted the text or email for whatever reason and sent that email to his boss saying that he was going home to check on it. 
Rick said that he was pulled over on his phone for about five minutes before getting back on the road and heading home. And if this is an accurate retelling of the facts, Rick should have gotten home at around 8.35 a.m. But Rick initially told police that he had gotten back sometime between 8.45 and 9. Minutes matter here because that's all we're working with. According to court records, when Rick got home, he says he parked in the driveway, went through the garage, and entered the house into the kitchen. He set his phone down by the stove, his keys on the hutch in the living room, and turned on the coffee maker so he could make some. His wallet was in his back right pocket at this point. After settling in, he heard that noise upstairs and figured it was one of the cats, but went to check on it anyway just to make sure that no lights had been left on. When he walked to his cracked bedroom door, he said he noticed the light in the closet was on because that door was cracked as well. Through both cracked doors, he was somehow able to see the intruder rifling through the closet. He says he watched for a second as the intruder looked through shelves and drawers, but when the intruder noticed him, noticing him, Rick says that the man pulled that knife out from his waist. He gave a similar description of the intruder and the knife, but added that the knife had a black handle. And this time, Rick couldn't remember whether or not the intruder had been wearing gloves. Rick walked detectives through the whole gimme your wallet spiel and said that within 30 seconds this time, not a minute like he had previously stated, he heard the garage door opening. In this rendition, Rick says that he heard Connie come in the house from the garage and yelled from the closet in the bedroom on the second floor for Connie to run because someone was in the house. Rick now claims that that is when the intruder started manhandling him, even though in the previous story, the manhandling came before Connie got home, but now he was saying it happened after, adding that the man used a wrist pressure point to guide him to the ground when previously the wrist pressure point was how the intruder got him to the folding chair. Either way, Rick says that the intruder did that to get past him, then ran down the stairs and past the front door after Connie. From the second floor, Rick claimed to have heard Connie running down the basement stairs, so he got up to follow but tripped on the landing. As he tripped, he heard the intruder run down the basement stairs as well, so Rick got back up and followed behind. Once in the basement, Rick heard Connie and the intruder in the wood room, so he went in there. He said it was dark since there were no lights on, but says he could see Connie frozen in place, standing, facing away from the intruder, who was about three feet from her, holding his arm out, pointing a gun at her head. Please note that there was no mention this time of Connie yelling that she had a gun and to get out of the house. Rick told detectives that he thought he saw a flash, so he closed his eyes and fell to the ground. He then thought he heard another shot. In his last book of tall tales, he said that he had rushed over to Connie and thought the second shot was for him, but I guess we're deleting that. When Rick managed to stand up, he says he saw Connie on the floor and recognized that the gun in the intruder's hand was his own. I guess the dude didn't drop it or point it at him this time, but okay. Instead, Rick says the intruder walked towards him and did a new pressure point thing with his neck and wrist. He says he then proceeded to walk him like a dog. Not only was Rick tossing the headlock from his last version of events, he seemed to also be insinuating that the intruder now had three hands, one hand holding the gun, another on Rick's neck, and a third on his wrist, but who's counting? Once in the chair, the intruder managed to somehow find Rick's very own zip ties and bind him with them. At the beginning of this section of the interview, Rick couldn't remember whether or not the intruder was wearing gloves, 
but he now remembered that he was wearing a yellow glove that looked a lot like the one he owned. The intruder proceeded to jab Rick with his own box cutter while simultaneously looking for things to burn. Like, according to Rick, the clothes Rick was wearing? That might very well be the dumbest thing he has said thus far. The burning came last in this retelling, which makes a lot more sense with his story that he fought off the intruder by turning the blowtorch on him. That's when the intruder ran and Rick crawled his way up the stairs and into the living room where he pushed the panic alarm and eight minutes later hurled himself up to the counter so he could call 911. I suppose his flesh wounds and ankle burn required hurling. This time, Rick said he was in the basement for five minutes before calling 911, as opposed to his previous claim of 30 seconds to one minute. Neither can be true, since there's eight minutes between the panic alarm and the 911 call, neither of which were done from the basement. This episode is sponsored by Care Of. Hey guys, last year I resolved to take care of me. Obviously, I'm a mom, wife, and podcaster, so I take care of a lot of people. But 2023 was the year of making sure I prioritize myself too. Part of that was taking care of my body. And this year, my resolution is to simply keep that up. One of the things I made sure to do last year was drink enough water, get enough sleep, and make sure I watch a show all by myself at night for no other reason than loving it. And of course, taking my vitamins. That is where Care Of comes in. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. The beginning of my vitamin journey was a little bit confusing because there are so many options out there, but once I found Care Of, the rest was history. I took their very simple online quiz about my lifestyle and health goals, and they even asked me questions that wouldn't have occurred to me when it comes to trying to figure out which vitamins are best for me and my body, like how often I eat dairy and what my stress levels were looking like. Obviously, those are only two of the questions they asked, but you get where I'm going. Because I don't eat a ton of dairy, they recommended a calcium supplement, and because I am indeed a little bit stressed because I like to overcommit, they recommended ashwagandha. It truly did make a difference, and I am sure that my bones are thanking me for the calcium. And they didn't just say, like, here, take this, trust us. They actually explained why they recommended the vitamins they did, and I was then able to pick and choose which ones I wanted to incorporate into my daily routine. Care-of's vitamins are curated with research-backed ingredients and optimal doses, and I just love how educated I have felt throughout this process. Care-of's vitamins also come in these cute little daily packs, so I'm not opening a bunch of different bottles. I can throw them in my bag when I'm in a hurry, or I can pop a few in my suitcase when it's time for me to travel. It is so simple. 2024 is a year of me, and I cannot say enough amazing things about how Care Of has made it so easy for me to stay on track with my me health goals. And for me, that does and will always include daily vitamins. The way that I felt pre-vitamin life versus how I feel now is night and day. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code BIGMAD50. For 50% off your first care of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code BIGMAD50. Since Rick's timeline seems to be very off here, let's walk through it to see just how stupid he thinks these detectives are. Rick should have gotten home at around 8.35 a.m. 
Let's say he fiddled around for two minutes before hearing the noise and watched the intruder for another couple of minutes before being noticed. Considering all of that, let's estimate that this intruder spotted Rick no later than 8.40 a.m. If he was in the closet with him for 30 to 60 seconds before hearing Connie come home, that would put her arrival time and her sprint to the basement no later than 8.41. Taking into account Rick's tripping, falling, and whatever the hell else he did, let's assume it takes him a minute to catch up to Connie and the intruder, which would mean that he would have met them in the wood room at around 8.42. If he saw Connie get shot as he was making his way towards her, we can guess that that happened between 8.42 and 8.43. Rick said he spent between 30 seconds to five minutes in the basement before calling 911. So at max, using Rick's own statements, he should have called for help no later than 8.48 a.m. But alas, the panic alarm wasn't hit until more than an hour later at 10.11. You can try to make it make sense, but you will fail. Detectives wanted to know more about the gun used to kill Connie since it was Rick's, and Rick told them that it was one of two guns he owned, and he had only recently bought them a couple of months ago. One gun was kept loaded in a portable safe in the basement, and the other was kept unloaded in another portable safe in the master bedroom closet. The gun used to kill Connie was the only loaded gun in the house and was the one from the basement. To access it, Someone would have had to have found the key to the safe, unlocked the safe, and unlocked the gun lock. I don't know where in this timeline Rick thinks that's plausible, but he seems to think anything is possible at this point. Rick signed his statement and was told that he wasn't under arrest and could leave at any time, but detectives did have some additional questions if he was willing to answer them. Rick decided there was no time like the present, and this is where things get unhinged. According to court records, Rick told police that he and Connie were doing pretty good, but she had been depressed lately and getting angry and taking angry stuff out on the family, but it was nothing abnormal and things were getting better. He told police that they had recently reconnected on a trip to Vermont, which he described as a date night in Dover to see some snow, adding that he'd even booked a cruise for them in June or something like that. Rick didn't exactly exude romantic vibes, so detectives asked him if they were going to uncover any relationship issues in the course of their investigation, and Rick took a second to think about his answer. He decided on the words yes and no. According to Rick, Connie wanted another baby, but due to health reasons, she couldn't conceive. He also told them that she was too busy to have another baby and couldn't. Those are two very different things. He said that because of their conundrum, He and Connie asked their friend Samantha, who was single, never married, and wanted to have a baby, to help them out. Samantha was divorced, and certainly not Connie's friend, but let's keep going. Rick told police that the traditional sperm donation process was too time-consuming and expensive, so he did some untraditional things to get Samantha pregnant. He said that Connie and Samantha planned to three-parent this baby together, which was due in February. Detectives asked if Rick thought it bothered Connie that he had impregnated Samantha, and he replied that, in a way, it was Connie's idea, saying, she was amazing. I never expected it to go that way, though Rick was sure to mention that he didn't think Connie told anybody about the pregnancy. Rick's statements about the pregnancy evolved in the same way his intruder story did. At the beginning of his statement, he said that Samantha was their friend, but as time went on, Rick referred to Samantha as his friend from back in school. 
And even though he claimed that the three of them planned to co-parent this baby together, he went on to say that there were some things about this whole situation that Samantha wasn't okay with. And they were really just going to wait until it all happened and see where it goes. Detectives were picking up the bullshit that Rick was putting down, so they dug a little deeper, asking Rick point blank if the pregnancy was planned. Rick said there was cheating going on in the beginning on both sides. Rick's response did not answer their question, and he continued skirting the truth by saying things like, this situation was something that we talked about, adding that Samantha brought it up and Connie kind of brought it up because she knew about Samantha. Literally none of that means anything, and the fact that he started this story out by saying that Connie had been angry and depressed lately and taking stuff out on family, straight to jail. Rick broke down and finally told police that he just didn't want to lie anymore, when in reality he just wanted to tell a new one. He said that initially the pregnancy was kept a secret because it was unexpected. He said it was so hard to tell Connie, and she was mad at first but wanted to keep their family unit intact and really wanted another baby. Rick said he was potentially romantically involved with Samantha, and they'd been off and on for seven years. He claimed Connie knew something was there, but she wasn't usually jealous about it, only sometimes. Rick claimed that for a while, Samantha thought he was going to divorce Connie, but they worked through it. Detectives were getting frustrated with Rick's riddles and ultimately brought the conversation back to the crime scene. They told him it was still being processed and questions were arising. Rick responded with, I've been honest with everything you've asked me. Detectives told him they planned on putting together a detailed timeline, including his statements, texts, calls, emails, and his 911 call to see if everything lined up with his versions of events. Rick seemed to encourage them, saying, I want it to line up. I want to be honest. But wishes and wants don't keep you off the prison yard. Rick could have stopped this interview at any point in time. He'd been discharged from the hospital and they'd even had to move to a different room to continue their chat. Each time they played musical chairs, Rick was reminded that he wasn't under arrest and that he didn't have to answer any questions. Instead of leaving, Rick would YOLO and talk himself into a corner. When police told him there were inconsistencies with his story, Rick stonewalled them saying, okay. When they told him the facts weren't adding up, Rick again said, okay. Pressing further, a detective told Rick that the investigation showed things had not gone down the way he said they did, to which Rick finally spoke in sentences again, saying, I did not shoot Connie. I'm going to stick with my truth. I'm not going to lie to you. But there is no my truth here. There is the truth and there is the rest. The only thing Rick has consistently done since the moment police found him with a folding chair over his ass was lie. In a last-ditch effort to try and get Rick to confess, a detective suggested that maybe he had just snapped under the pressure of having a pregnant mistress. But Rick did not take the bait, insisting that he had simply froze like hell and was too weak to defend his wife against murderous camo MacGyver. Rick loved to hear himself talk, and thankfully, that is his undoing. Rick admitted that he was a weak man, but he was also a weak bitch. Detectives pointed to the fact that nowhere in Rick's official statement did he ever say that he went back to check on his wife after he got freed from the chair. Not once before crawling up the stairs with flesh wounds did he go back to the wood room and check on Connie. In fact, as far as detectives knew, no one had even told Rick that Connie had died, though he claims to have overheard someone say DOA or dead on arrival for anybody who doesn't know what that means. 
Rick defended his bitchery by saying that he'd yelled and yelled, but she didn't answer. He said he was scared that someone might come back, so he focused on calling for help. And I suppose hiding in plain sight on the kitchen floor was his solution. When Rick was asked why he didn't shed a single tear throughout the entire time they had been talking, he got defensive, saying that he had cried earlier like so much and that they could ask the nurses if they didn't believe him, adding, I'm not a criminal. I'm not violent. We were getting solid. It wasn't me. A total of zero people believed him. As the interview was wrapping up, detectives told Rick that in cases like these, they tend to use polygraph tests as a tool to eliminate potential suspects. Rick challenged them, saying, do it, but that he was going to need to get a lawyer and had to think smart now if they were going to be accusing him of this. He then asked police to let him have some time with his kids. Rick left the hospital, hired an attorney the next day, and never spoke to police again. Following Rick's release from the hospital, police went all hands on deck with their investigation, interviewing medical staff, speaking to neighbors, family, and friends, even Samantha and combing through thousands of pages of data from phones, computers, and the home security systems, which, by the way, have motion sensors. But unfortunately, all that is going to have to wait until next week. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Connie's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there today at noon Eastern, where you go live with me and talk about today's case and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just two whole dollars a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case that you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of this episode, which means that it's time to share a review that made my entire day. This one is from Ordinary Artisan and says, this podcast is like sitting with your bestie in your favorite coffee shop slash fern bar slash local dive and talking impeccably researched trash about scum puppies who really deserve it. If you like a controversial take on crimes that will get your blood boiling, you are not alone. Ordinary Artisan, first of all, I would like to go to a fern bar. I assume it's a plant store. Number one. Number two, I need you to write the description for the podcast from now on. It's way cooler than the one that I've picked out. Also, thank you for being our people. You're one of us. You're the real deal. And thanks for reviewing me. That's so nice. You don't have to do that. But I love it when you guys do. All right. If you've made it to this far, you've made it to the hot take. And it's really hard for me to do a hot take in this episode without giving away the entire fucking case. When I tell you that I went through court documents for like a week and a half straight. I need to touch grass. But it is fascinating. There, there's so much evidence in this case, whether it's physical, whether it is forensic, although I, th- whatever, we're mushing words here. Technology, insane. The amount of evidence in this case is insane. And I cannot wait to walk you through the next half of this case. The last half of this case next week, my voice is going. Because it's insane. There are so many pieces and parts to this puzzle. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Watts case and also the Belinda Temple case. Uh, The way that evidence was 
compiled and used against a motherfucker. Which it will be. Which I think you guys saw where this is going. But yeah, so many fucking twists and turns. I mean, they're all going in in the same direction, but so many twists and turns. So we're going to get into more of that next week and I'll have a way better hot take because I don't want to give everything away, which I for sure would if I went off. Okay. I love you guys. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.